Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Christian Bursett about his book published by Yale University Press titled An Empire of Laws, Legal Pluralism in British Colonial Policy, which is a really interesting examination, re-examination of ways that Britain used law to shape its empire um, across a bunch of different places, across different times, and bringing all of those things together um, to help us understand kind of the relationship between law and empire. So Christian, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about your book. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of law at Notre Dame Law School uh, in the U.S. Uh, and I teach classes in civil procedure, conflicts, and my main area of research, legal history. So why write this book? Uh, Primarily to clear up what I thought was a fundamental misconception that many people have about how law works in empires. Uh, But for me, there's also a question about why write a book at all. As you or your listeners may know, Law professors have traditionally focused on articles, not books, especially as junior scholars. And I was writing this book uh, before I got tenure very much as a junior scholar. So one question I had to confront was, why write a book at all? And I thought it was it was worth doing for a few reasons. Uh, the most important was that I, I wanted to take an argument to doubt the British Empire that just couldn't fit into an article. That was partly because of the empire's size and complexity, and partly because my argument had to challenge Uh, so many uh, preconceptions and misconceptions about how law works in empires in general uh, that I just couldn't fit in everything necessary except in a book. I should also say that like many first academic books, this one grew out of my doctoral dissertation. So I already had something like a first draft, which made it a little bit more reasonable to take on before getting tenure. Those are some very good reasons. Um, And I think very useful to kind of have that as things that people think about when writing a book. It's not just about the ideas. There's a whole lot of things that go into this kind of effort. Um, But talking, I suppose, more about the ideas, um, because I do really want to get into them. Can you introduce us to the question at the heart of the book and maybe walk us through a little bit how you developed it? Absolutely. The core question is, why did the 18th century British Empire apply different laws in different places? Why did some British colonies end up as common law jurisdictions, while others were legally plural, involving the application of a variety of different kinds of English and non-English law? Uh, let me make that a little bit more concrete. I think to start just with just about two colonies, New York and Quebec. These are adjacent colonies, both in British North America. They were both conquered by Britain for other European powers. New York from the Netherlands in the 1660s, Quebec from France in the 1760s. But they ended up, despite the similarities, with quite different legal histories. New York ends up as a common law jurisdiction with essentially the same legal system as other colonies in British America. Quebec, in contrast, got a combination of French civil law and English criminal law. So why such a big difference? Um, The the short version of the answer is that... um, uh, 
well, the usual answer that people would give is that this was basically inevitable. Uh, maybe it was demography or environmental considerations or the rise of toleration, but in any event, it was going to happen automatically. And my book's argument is different. Uh, Britain deliberately manipulated colonial laws, I argue, to shape colonial development by controlling how much English law each colony received. British officials thought they could guide its economic, political, and cultural trajectory. So that's the, the short version of, of the argument. Um, how did I develop that question in the first place? Well, this was entirely a matter of, 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 of good luck and chance. When I first got to graduate school, uh, my very first year of my PhD, I came in thinking that I was going to write something about the conquest of Jamaica. Uh, and so I went to my, my advisor, uh, Steve Pankus, and I told him that. And he uh, said, that's great. Uh, but for my first paper in graduate school, I had to write about something totally different. It was just a rule he had. And I had no idea what I was going to do. I mean, I was you know, brand new to graduate school. I had, didn't really have that many workable ideas. And so I went to the, the Beinecke Library, which is the rare book and manuscript library at Yale, and began almost at random to call up materials, basically anything with the keywords British Empire and the right dates. And uh, one of the first things I was lucky enough to, to encounter uh, was a series of letters from a, a British official with the East India Company in India back to a, a relative in England. And these letters were explaining, among other things, uh, ordeal trials that he was superintending. And it was clear from the letters, on one hand, that this British official thought that ordeal trials were a crazy way to adjudicate cases. He thought this was absolutely terrible, superstitious, you, you name it. On the other hand, it was clear that he and other British officials thought it was really important to get these ordeals right in the sense of administering them procedurally correctly. Um, the East India Company would offer its seal to authenticate these proceedings, things like that. So I began to wonder, why on earth would the East India Company invest so much energy in doing something correctly when it thought that procedure was a terrible way to decide cases? And that raised then broader questions for me about why at all would the British East India Company ever administer non-English law in India? Or why would the British Empire administer non-English law in any colony? And that set me on the path to this uh, dissertation first, and then eventually uh, the book that it turned into. Hmm. What an interesting question and argument, but also I love the story of how it was developed. So thank you for sort of taking us into the library behind the scenes um, as part of that as well. Before we get further into the details of um, what you what you found and what you wrote about, um, I want to make sure that we're sort of clear about some of the key terms here. So can you tell us what you mean by legal pluralism and also why it's kind of a tricky concept to analyze? Yes, absolutely. And as you said, this is right at the beginning of my subtitle. So it's a very important term for my book. In general, legal pluralism refers to the existence of multiple legal systems within a single society or geographic area. But that basic idea can encompass a lot of very different and maybe even inconsistent phenomena. So for example, one use of the term refers to the administration of multiple kinds of law by the state. So for example, when an empire administers a mix of imperial and indigenous law in a particular colony. That's often how the term legal pluralism was used in the, in the 1960s when theorists are trying to grapple with the complex legal systems in, for example, post-colonial Africa or other places that had recently achieved independence from European rule. But legal pluralism can also refer, in different literatures, to the competition between state and non-state sources of authority. So, for example, when official law says do one thing, but customary practices require another. Since these are just two examples of the many ways in which the term has been used. And there's a further challenge to using the term. 
which is that it's not totally clear how much difference is needed to count as legal pluralism. So, you know, for example, in the US, New York and New Jersey have different laws. Is that just difference or is that does that amount to legal pluralism? What's the difference if it isn't? So in using the term legal pluralism uh, risks inviting confusion. And during the many years that I worked on this project, uh, I kept trying to find suitable alternatives, but really nothing else came up. Uh, and it was also the case that there was a lot of excellent work using the phrase legal pluralism in colonial contexts. Uh, and I wanted to be able to engage with that work more easily by sticking with well-established terminology. So instead of getting rid of the phrase, I tried to be very explicit in the book about how I was using it. And my book uh, is concerned with what I call strategic legal pluralism, uh, when the state deliberately applies different legal systems to different groups of people. Um, so I'm concerned with official decisions by the state to administer different kinds of law to different groups, not the informal coexistence of state and non-state norms. I'm also concerned with big differences in law, uh, what the legal scholar Brian Tamanaha calls manifest legal pluralism. Uh, and what that means is the legal systems have to strike participants as quite different from each other. And one way to think about that is to ask whether a lawyer could easily practice in both systems. So for example, by the 1730s, it was pretty easy for a Philadelphia lawyer to practice in New York City. So New York and Pennsylvania laws were, were pretty were different in some ways, but they were basically intelligible to each other. It would have been very difficult for that same Philadelphia lawyer to litigate, say, under French civil law or Islamic law. So that's the kind of difference I'm talking about uh, when I talk about strategic legal pluralism. Okay, that's very helpful to understand because it isn't, uh, there, there are a lot of terms being kind of tossed around and, and understanding kind of the link between, well, what do these things mean and what does that actually mean in practice um, sometimes gets lost. So I'm, I really appreciated that in the book. Uh, that there was that kind of discussion and clarity, and of course, you for bringing it here as well, um, so that we can kind of talk about what this means more in practice. So if we move, I suppose, chronologically um, through the contents of the book, can you take us kind of right back to the very early British Empire? Um, I mean, even honestly, when it's still more the English Empire, what was the thinking then? about law and what it had to do about with, with colonies and what sorts of laws colonies should have if we're thinking, I know it's a big time period, but let's say restoration to seven years war? Sure, of course. Yeah. And yeah, and, and as you say, this is a big time period and a lot of space, but I think we can generalize a bit here. Um, so during that century, from say 1660 to 1760 or so, um, what you might call the early modern empire or the, the first British empire, the British Empire was very much a common law empire. Now, that is a very strange thing for me to say, because, of course, anybody who's studied colonial law from that period is going to jump up and tell you the laws of Britain's various colonies were quite different from each other in practice. Um, and that's true. But as a matter of both of policy and of ideology, uh, England and then Britain tried to keep everyone in its colonies within the same basic legal framework. Uh, what historians, including Mary Sarah Builder and, and Dan Hulsebosch, have, have talked about as a framework of repugnance and divergence. So it was assumed, on one hand, that colonial laws would, would diverge from English law. But those divergences could not be repugnant, and that was the term used in law at the time, could not be repugnant to the laws of England. So there'd be a diversity of laws, but that diversity was managed and constrained. Um, which, again, is why it was possible for, the, for, um, for example, a Philadelphia lawyer to practice in New York 
or why we see uh, examples of lawyers traveling from the Carolinas or Virginia to study in England before returning home to practice. There were differences in each jurisdiction, but it was one common law universe, basically. And this was true, by the way, even with, even with respect to East India Company outposts in India, which Ross's work uh, was especially useful on that score, showing how even in places like Madras, um, local courts and lawyers would try to make their systems intelligible uh, to lawyers back in England. So that sounds like a functional system, right? People are communicating about law. Philadelphia lawyers can practice in New York. Um, there are clear lines of communication and discussion happening about this. Why around the 1760s did discussions start to think about other ways forward? And what were those other ways? So the Seven Years' War is a major turning point, both in, in British history, but also in the narrative of my book. Um, that war changed the empire in some fundamental ways. Uh, Britain won that war. It was victorious. Uh, it defeated France and Spain. Uh, but the war cost a lot of money. Uh, and that created anxiety after the war about the state of imperial finances. We have a lot of discussions about how to repair those. The war and the Treaty of Paris, which ended it, also exposed some fundamental political instability in Britain and its empire. So there ended up being a lot of, of uh, debate about how to stabilize things or how to respond to that disagreement domestically as well. Um, and there was also this the challenge of managing lots of new colonies. So um, part of, of winning the war meant that Britain had a bunch of new territory. Quebec, um, much of the American interior, including what was known as the Illinois country, uh, West and East Florida, several islands in the West Indies, including Grenada, Senegambia and West Africa. Uh, plus, the East India Company had separately uh, acquired de facto control over Bengal. And this was not just a lot of space. It was a lot of people, tens of millions of new subjects or de facto subjects. And it was also a much more diverse empire, both religiously and ethnically. It was no longer even plausible to pretend that the British Empire was a Protestant empire. You had all sorts of non-Protestants uh, in it as well. And so the result is as people began thinking uh, much more uh, creatively and deliberately about how to govern this very much changed uh, British Empire. Um, the book talks about the sort of responses to that um, by distilling them into three ideological groups, which it calls populists, paternalists, and moderates. Um, each of these groups, not quite a party in the modern sense, although you might think of it that way, um, populists envisioned a somewhat egalitarian empire, at least for white Protestant men. Not perfectly egalitarian, but they saw rough parity between colonies and the metropole. Uh, certainly economic parity. They didn't want the interest of any part of the empire to be elevated over any other part. Uh, populists were also very committed to having a participatory politics, again, at least for uh, for Protestant men. Paternalists had sort of the opposite vision. Uh, paternalists were very much concerned with maintaining order, restoring order of the empire. This was true both domestically, so within England or within individual, individual colonies, making sure there was a good social hierarchy, but also maintaining the hierarchy between uh, the metropole on one hand and the colonies on the other, and seeing the colonies as basically existing to serve the economic and political needs of the metropole. Uh, moderates, the third group I talk about, uh, are, as the name suggests, uh, somewhat in between those other two, uh, trying to try and create a compromise position. Uh, if you want to put sort of names to those groups, uh, for a populist, you can think of someone like the elder Pitt, uh, Lord Chatham, would be a representative populist. For paternalists, somebody like George Grenville uh, or Lord Mansfield, and moderates, uh, somebody like Edmund Burke or Lord Rockingham. Hmm. That's, I think, 
definitely some names that listeners are going to recognize and therefore be able to place into or as, I suppose, representative figures in the mental model of those groups. So thank you for taking us through that. Can we talk about one of those um, recent acquisitions in a bit more detail to kind of understand how some of this is playing out practically? Um, you talk in the book a lot about how the law is used in Quebec, and particularly that it's used in a particular way to ensure that Quebec is, quote, economically underdeveloped, politically docile, and dependent on Britain. Can you walk us through how this was done and what role this particular example is playing in these wider debates? Uh, sure. So each of these groups I talked about, the paternalists, the populists, and the moderates, each of their visions of the British Empire had a corollary in legal policy. So paternalists, because of their obsession with colonial control and hierarchy, uh, they were very keen on using uh, the legal systems of the empire to reinforce that. Uh, populists, again, with their, with their obsession with uh, relative equality and avoiding uh, uh, hierarchy between the colonies and the metropole, wanted to use law to do that. So the populist vision of law was to have basically one common law for the entire empire. The idea being that a single English law for the empire would both represent and effect the equality of all British subjects, whether metropolitan or colonial, and would facilitate a much more integrated empire, uh, again, one where there was much more parity between colonies and metropole. Paternalists had the opposite kind of, of, of theory. They were really trying to, to, again, to use law to create hierarchy. And they thought that legal pluralism, the retention of French law, would do that in three ways. Um, the first was paternalists liked the substance of French civil law. Many paternalists became concerned that English law was too libertarian, uh, to govern the empire effectively. It was too easy, for example, to sue government officials or soldiers or things like that. And so French law, they thought, was more conducive in substance to creating an obedient, docile society. The second way that French law was supposed to work uh, to keep Quebec dependent and docile was a strategy of divided rule. So in the Quebec Act, which was the, the legislation that restored French civil law to Quebec, when it was being developed, when it was passed in 1774, right, that was precisely when the British Empire was beginning to worry quite a bit about the budding American Revolution. And so one key concern for British policymakers was to prevent Quebec from allying with places like Boston and New York in resisting British rule. And so the theory was, if the Canadians had a different legal system compared to the rest of, Amer of uh, British North Americans, there'd be less, digression, less integration less interchange, less communication, less likelihood that Quebec would actually join and think of itself as an American colony um, that might join a future American rebellion. Uh, now, divided rule is a pretty common imperial strategy, but it had a particular economic dimension in the context of British Quebec. And that is that um, British officials thought that French law would discourage investment and immigration to Quebec. The theory was that British merchants and potential settlers wouldn't want to trade with or move into Quebec if they lacked the protections of English law. Uh, and that, you know, somebody, for example, a merchant in London who was thinking about where to trade or where to send his goods or where to invest money um, would vastly prefer to do so in a common law jurisdiction. And this would keep Quebec relatively poor and therefore relatively more dependent on uh, the British metropole for support and development. And what was this doing in terms of how people thought of common law? I mean, this is obviously quite different from what you were telling us was happening earlier. What, besides, I guess, going beyond the three groups of people, was this impacting kind of how people thought about the law more broadly? 
Yes, certainly in, in a few ways. So what is that? People had their head. So if you go back to say the 17th century, to the period of the first British empire, uh, what is also thought of as the period of the classical common law, people tended to think lawyers in particular tended to think about the common law as a system of writs, right? So there wasn't really a law of contract or tort as lawyers today would think about it. Um, there was more like a law of assumpsit or a law of debt, things like that. Very uh, technical, procedurally focused conception of the law. As people thought in more deliberate ways about transplanting English law to different places or not, um, people had to start thinking about the law in more substantive terms. So the question became not, do I transplant the writ of assumpsit to Quebec? But more, should Quebec have English commercial law? So it's a much more functional approach to law. Uh, that was probably the biggest impact on how people thought about uh, uh, about uh, the common law. I also want to say, though, when I talk about these three groups of paternalists, moderates, and populists, I'm not just talking about the narrow subset of, of elite politicians who are, for example, debating these issues in parliament. Although, of course, those are ultimately some of the most important people for policymaking. These were also issues that had a much broader purchase uh, throughout the British Empire. So it's not just MPs who are debating about whether or not English law belongs in Quebec. It's also merchants, merchants in London and uh, merchants throughout England, throughout Britain, and merchants in Quebec and the American colonies. Uh, these are issues being discussed in the press and newspapers and pamphlets. Um, these are being discussed in letters uh, between various figures. So when I talk about groups like paternalists and populists, I don't just mean the politicians. I also mean a broader set of people in the empire who are thinking about um, how law is going to affect their jobs, their lives uh, as they go forward. Hmm. I think that's a very useful um, specification. So thank you for adding that on. Speaking of how it's going to affect other people, not just Quebec, um, what about other colonies? Why was Quebec treated differently from other acquisitions, um, if we're thinking, for example, Bengal? Um, and how did this fit into, as you've just described, kind of these debates that are already happening about what is common law, where is it being implemented and how? What's happening in Bengal and why is it different from Quebec? So Bengal and Quebec both get some form of legal pluralism uh, in that neither becomes a you know, purely common law jurisdiction. Um, but legal pluralism looks different in each place. And that's mostly because the purpose of legal pluralism is different in each place. In Quebec, as I said, it's really about stopping Quebec from becoming the next Boston or, or other rebellious colony. So the concern there is about isolation, about, about you know, quelling development uh, and things like that. Uh, Bengal has a somewhat different set of concerns. So the East India Company, which is really the, the group that's running Bengal at the time, um, isn't so much concerned about, about Bengal joining the American Revolution. Right? Geography makes that very unlikely. It's just a different set of politics there. Um, but they are, they are concerned about facilitating extraction. So the earlier version of the East India Company was really a trading concern. They were trying to make money um, through imports and exports. After 1765, however, um, the British East India Company was really, in many ways, focused on tax farming. They'd gotten a grant uh, known as the Diwani uh, in Bengal um, from uh, the Mughal Empire. Uh, and that Diwani entitled them to collect revenue from the inhabitants of, of Bengal. And he basically used that revenue to, to uh, enrich their shareholders. And so the model at that point was basically one of, of predatory extraction. And so the concern of the East India Company was to create a legal system that would facilitate that extractive model. That meant, for example, that East India Company officials were very concerned to stop juries from being introduced. Why? Uh, they had nothing against juries per se, but juries would not have helped revenue collection. You could imagine, for example, if there was a, a jury composed of Bengali jurors and they were hearing suits, uh, for example, by uh, Bengali taxpayers 
against company tax collectors, you might imagine that would throw a wrench in the works of this revenue extraction. So that was the key driving concern about legal pluralism in Bengal. So, so you get a somewhat similar set of outcomes, um, but based on a somewhat different set of, of, of inputs. Now, Bengal and Quebec are both legally plural colonies. They're very different from what happens elsewhere in the empire. So if we look at the other colonies that Britain acquired in 1763 as a result of the Treaty of Paris, um, Florida, West to East Florida, Southern Gambia, West Indies, these are all former French or Spanish colonies, but they all get common law uh, to varying extents. In all these places, um, Britain invests in, for example, courthouses. So I found a plan in the National Archives of a courthouse for Senegambia, which included, for example, um, a place for the jury to sit. They bring into Senegambia uh, a common law, a common lawyer to serve as judge. And this, you see similar things happening in Grenada, other West Indian islands, and the Floridas as well. The reason for this difference is because Britain had a very different idea about what should happen in those colonies compared to Bengal or Quebec. In all the colonies that get common law, Britain is very much trying to encourage development as opposed to stunt it. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. One is that in all these places, again, there's no real concern about budding revolution. Uh, so for example, uh, Grenada being largely uh, a slavery-based economy, um, British policymakers are quite confident that white planters there are not going to rebel because they're too uh, afraid of enslaved people uh, rebelling against that. Uh, in the Floridas, there simply aren't enough people. The, the British policymakers aren't worried about rebellion or aren't worried about economic uh, self-sufficiency because they really just need to get more people there to make the colony work at all. And so because in the Floridas, Senegambia, and the West Indies, Britain's trying to jumpstart development, it introduces the common law uh, because they assume the common law is actually going to, to, to create that. And one thing I, I, I hope that listeners are noticing here is that the one thing that is not driving British policy decisions is climate. There's a long series of, of uh, a long body of work um, in both history and the social sciences suggesting that climate is the key driver of when Britain would introduce common law or not. The theory being that Britain would introduce its own institutions in uh, so-called neo-Europe's temperate areas where a lot of Britons could settle easily, and Britain would not introduce English institutions in places that were too tropical or too deadly for Europeans to settle. And what I found in the 18th century was that this that just wasn't the case. Um, there are tropical or unhealthy climates that get common law, like Senegambia, and tropical or unhealthy climates that don't, like Bengal. There are healthy climates that don't get common law, like Quebec, and healthy climates uh, that do get common law, like New York. So climate here is not really the driver. It really is entirely about what kind of colony British policymakers want to build in a given place. Hmm. And that has a lot more to do with kind of the goals for the colony rather than what the weather is. Exactly. And in particular, uh, the goals of the politicians who happen to be in charge. So the mm. so part of what the book is arguing is not just that Britain as a whole is trying to build certain kinds of colonies, but that the paternalist vision of extraction and hierarchy wins out over the populist alternative of a more egalitarian set of empires. So, so it's, yes, it's what, for what Britain is trying to do, but particularly Britain as envisioned by the paternalists to get the upper hand in controlling British policy at the time. Can I ask you to add in a strand that we haven't really discussed yet, but is a part of the book and I think would be really interesting to bring in? This time, we're also starting to see things around humanitarianism um, as a sort of concept, sometimes related to religion in certain ways, but kind of as a thing, not necessarily just as part of Protestantism. How do ideas of humanitarianism play into these developments that you're talking us through? 
they play a very important role. So, you know, so as I've been arguing, and as the, as the book argues, Britain adopted its policy of colonial legal pluralism to shape development in different places. That was the primary purpose. For that reason, is another question, which is why legal pluralism won. Why did the paternalists persuade uh, the British public as a whole or parliament uh, to back their plan? Uh, and why did the populists not do that? And this is where humanitarianism enters in. Um, paternalists introduced the argument that legal pluralism was simply less cruel than introducing English law. They argued that it would be abusive and tyrannical to tear people away from the laws they knew and to force them to adopt new ones. And so you see, for example, proponents of French civil law in Quebec arguing that introducing things like English trials by jury in the writ system would be similar to an auto de fe or a forced religious conversion, forcing Catholics in, in, in Quebec to become Protestant. Now, paternalists embrace this humanitarian argument with, I think, varying degrees of sincerity. Uh, it seems, when I could tell from, from letters and things like that, um, that some paternalists really do seem to have believed it would be cruel to, it would have been cruel to impose English law suddenly and entirely. Uh, Lord Mansfield, for example, um, is a great proponent of legal pluralism. And I think he really does have a, have a real humanitarian streak. Uh, I mean, he was known not just for his um, work on colonial law, but also for decisions like Somerset's case, which uh, really uh, cast doubt on the legality of slavery in England. And he really did seem to have a, a humanitarian uh, point of view here. Other paternalists uh, seem to have adopted humanitarian rhetoric as a tactical measure. Right? So they really wanted to employ uh, pluralism to achieve economic goals, and they wanted to use humanitarian arguments to help them get those economic goals. And still other paternalists probably started out making humanitarian arguments from convenience or tactics um, before eventually persuading themselves of their own arguments merit. I think somebody like Warren Hastings might fit into that category, um, initially adapting these humanitarian arguments uh, just to preserve the legal system he set up in India um, for economic purposes, but then eventually really starting to believe his own, his own line about why it would be cruel to impose English law um, on Bengal. So these humanitarian arguments really play a crucial role uh, in helping legal pluralism succeed politically. And I think they have enduring consequences for how Anglophones, both in Britain and then later in the United States, think about law in various colonies. All right. I'm going to pick up on that. What are the legacies of this a little bit later? Because um, I'm sticking with my chronological thing here so we don't lose track of where we're at. Um, but put a pin on that, listeners. We're, we're going to come back to it. Before then, Christian, can you tell us a bit about kind of this this group has sort of, as you said, kind of dominated the debate. They've they've gotten what they wanted. Um, they have these ideas that have allowed them to kind of win out in that sense. And so this is put into practice in the various places in the different ways you've already determined. What then did that mean kind of on the ground? Was it in practice still sort of Westminster says do this and no matter where the colony is and what system they have, they kind of wait for Westminster say or... Is any of this kind of adjusted on the ground within a particular colony? How does that element of it work once we've gotten to the point of the paternalists kind of getting their way? It's a bit of both. So this is at the this is at the age when parliamentary sovereignty um, really becomes the dominant way of thinking about parliament's power over the colonies. And so at some level, the architecture of policy was driven from Westminster. Uh, you can see this in some very obvious ways, for example, with the Quebec Act. So the the reintroduction of French law to Quebec in 1774 is a result of a particular statute passed by Parliament. Um, early, uh, earlier in 1763, the introduction of English law to uh, uh, the West Indies, for example, was from, by proclamation, royal proclamation, issued again 
from England. So there, at the architectural level, there is quite a bit of policy setting done from London, um, and even sort of negative policy setting. So for example, Parliament debates uh, whether to impose English law on Bengal. Uh, they decide not to, right? But you could imagine things could have gone the other way. And so the decision of Parliament not to get involved is very important there. All of that said, uh, local officials, uh, local actors matter, matter quite a bit for how legal pluralism plays out on the ground. And they matter in a few different ways. Um, one is they can raise problems. So uh, some of British policy is responsive to particular high profile cases or protests that are happening in the colonies. Um, uh, the colonies matter in part because uh, of the way that colonial governors control the flow of information back to officials uh, in Westminster. Uh, so Governor Carlton, for example, at Quebec, uh, seems very adept at writing dispatches back to London that tell a certain story about how English law is or would be received in Quebec, a story that makes it seem very plausible that the only possible outcome, whether the most reasonable outcome, is to uh, uh, restore French law in Quebec, even though there's actually quite a few people there who would have preferred English law. And so colonial governors play an important role in shaping the story. Um, they also play an important role in implementation. Uh, in some ways, and in some in places, actually um, really uh, designing policy. So Governor Hastings, Governor Warren Hastings in Bengal, um, really is the person to design a great deal of what legal pluralism in Bengal looks like. Um, when, for example, it will take the form of uh, court-administered law, when it will take the form of more informal arbitration. It's very much Hastings on the ground uh, in Calcutta who's driving a lot of that policy, as opposed to people uh, uh, sitting back on Leadenhall Street at the East India Company's headquarters uh, back in London. Huh. Very interesting um, to think about, as you said, kind of the, the fact it's both, um, but how those things interact. If I can ask you to zoom out in some senses, um, not kind of, you know, given that we've now covered quite a lot of ground, both in space and time, you mentioned earlier um, a comparison between what Britain is doing and uh, what we might see if we looked at the law in French colonies. I'm wondering if you could maybe expand on that. Um, to what extent is what Britain is doing here that you've told us about similar or different to what France or Spain are doing at the same time? Or even if we don't care about the time period and we compare it with, for example, ancient Rome? So this is a place where I'm very much relying on secondary literature. This is my, my archival work is all in the British Empire. But I did do quite a bit of reading about other empires just to get a sense of how distinctive Britain was. And on one hand, it's true that every empire that I can think of had some sort of legal pluralism. Empires, by definition, are large and complex polities. They're very diverse. And it seems practically impossible that the same exact laws would apply to every part of an empire. On the other hand, the late 18th century British Empire was quite distinctive in how it responded to its internal complexity. So most of their empires, and this is particularly true of the French and Spanish empires at the same time, uh, have tried to manage difference and often to eliminate it. So, for example, if you think about the Spanish Empire, um, the 17th century Spanish minister, the, the Count Duke of Olivares, um, had this maxim he liked to recite of many kingdoms but one law. It was never true descriptively. There was actually diversity among the laws of, uh, within the laws of Spain and in the Spanish Empire, um, but it was an aspiration. The goal was to try to manage and reduce uh, the many laws of the Spanish Empire. Britain did the exact opposite. It not only didn't try to reduce legal complexity, it tried to exacerbate it deliberately. Why does this matter? Because it underscores the extent to which British policy was a strategic choice, as opposed to the natural path of an empire to take. It should surprise us how Britain decided to administer its laws. It wasn't the automatic outcome. Huh. 
very interesting to have that comparison, um, even with the caveat that you haven't, you know, there aren't archives that you've dived into for that one, um, but still a very interesting aspect to think through. So thank you for adding that in. Can we now pick up on the thread that I promised we would uh, as we're in this sort of zoomed out mode? What can we see? What are the legacies we might still have today from the story you've told us? Sure. I should say at the outset, this is very much a book about why Britain adopted its policy. It doesn't really try to try to prove that its policy actually worked as intended or had any particular effect. Um, part of that is just a matter of chronology. Um, so Britain turns to legal pluralism in the 1760s and 1770s. That is, of course, right before the American Revolution, right before the empire is remade yet again um, by losing a huge chunk of, the, uh, of its empire and then uh, beginning to acquire new territories. Uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, and so there's simply too many confounding variables. Like I can't tell you whether the Quebec Act actually kept Quebec um, economically underdeveloped because too much stuff, other stuff happened right after that. That said, I do think we can trace out a few legacies from this policy. One way to see this would just be by looking at two maps next to each other. And I realize that this is a podcast, but um, if listeners want, they can simply go on Wikipedia and if they look at Wikipedia for a map of the, of the British Empire, and the second map would be a map of common law jurisdictions in the world. And if you put these two maps next to each other, you'll see the map of former British colonies is a lot bigger than the list of purely common law jurisdictions. So the British Empire's policy in the 18th century, I think, helps to explain why the map of the world's law looks as it does, why there's not more common law on the map of, of the world's legal systems. And whether that's good or bad is, is a complicated question. I know there's there's debates in the UK about you know trying to tally up the ledger about whether the British Empire is good or bad. I don't want to get into that because I think for legal pluralism in particular, there is good and bad on both sides. So on one hand, I think there's a lot to admire in the idea that legal systems can and should incorporate diverse cultural and religious communities and sensibilities. Um, it's a very attractive ideal. It's part of why legal pluralism won, as we said, uh, in the 18th century. On the other hand, economists have found some evidence that plural legal systems today are not always optimal for economic development. Um, perhaps because of the very fact of their complexity, it just makes it harder um, for, for things to work. And so it's not, you know, I, I don't try to get into the book about whether this was good or bad on balance. Um, but I think what is clear, though, is that Britain's imperial legal policy fundamentally altered the legal architecture in much of the world. Uh, there is one other legacy that I want to mention, uh, which concerns the United States. And here I, I'm going to reveal my um, eradicable parochial Americanism, uh, <laughs> despite my, my training in, in British imperial history. Um, so I'm doing some work now on law's role in the expansion of the early United States. So for example, um, after American independence, as uh, the new country begins to think about expanding West uh, into uh, places like Illinois country, um, it created you know various policies, such as the Northwest Ordinance of, some, of 1787, um, to serve as a blueprint for its expansion. And what I found is that much of early American legal policy is a reaction against what Britain did in Quebec and elsewhere sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, a reaction against it. The United States was trying to build an empire that looked a lot more like the first British empire, one that was a common law empire. Um, and so in many ways, the architecture uh, for the formation of the early United States is in its own way a legacy of British legal pluralism. Hmm. Well, that's certainly a fascinating note to almost end on, because I do have one final question, um, though you've maybe just hinted at it, what are you working on now that this book is done? Yeah, so the, the American story is, is one uh, product I'm working on. Another one mm -hmm. uh, goes back to, to Britain. So I just finished an article uh, with T.T. Arvind of York Law School 
uh, called Partisan Jurisprudence in the Age of Camden and Mansfield, uh, basically trying to take some of the political dynamics that I talk about in this book, the populist versus the paternalist and things like that, and look at how that intersects with different uh, common law traditions, different ways of thinking about jurisprudence during the same period. Uh, we're hoping to expand that, that article into a book eventually, telling the story of different ways of thinking about the common law over time as intersected with changes in partisan politics. Um, I'm also doing a bit of work on the history of legal authority in the 18th century, uh, and particularly the history of legal precedent. Mm. All right. Well, if and when any of those become books, uh, please let us know. We'd love to have you back and hear more about them. But in the meantime, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, titled An Empire of Laws, Legal Pluralism in British Colonial Policy, published by Yale University Press. Christian, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Miranda.